Today we are hosting a conversation among men, and we are discussing masculine identity, particularly in Southwest Virginia. This report is the first in a series that will be featured on this program in relation to topics focused on masculinity and femininity. I think this is one of the most critical questions in human history, um, because I see this as part of a, a multi, like virtually every culture on earth that is alive, that it continues to exist today, has deep fundamental problems with imposing gender roles. That is the voice of Eric Smith. He is a professor of political science at the University of Virginia College at Wise. He was one of five people interviewed for this report who were brought together in an online conversation about the topic. The other participants include an owner of a construction company, a retired professional with a major corporation who is also a sports announcer, a young administrator for a nonprofit who now works also as a part-time assistant basketball coach, and a professor of psychology from Radford University. This discussion comes in the wake of a national election that reinforced a political gender gap. It also follows the mob violence in the nation's capital and ongoing debates about guns and domestic violence. And those gender roles tend to deprive certain people who are either of particular genders or who we have thought of in terms of uh, this is the strong group, this is the weak group, this is the superior, this is the inferior, however you want to conceptualize it. And that inevitably results in people being deprived of their, of their, their ability to, to be actors, to, to have control of their destiny, to take a, a, a role in their political system and their economy. It is, this is a, a, an important topic. I think especially for, for you know, boys becoming men and young men to get some clarity. David Berg is the father of five children, including two young sons, and he is the owner of a construction company. He employs approximately 40 workers, the large majority of whom are male. Uh, I have since, since my early adolescence really, really kind of focused and kind of made a study of, you know, when I first started asking the question, well, what is it to be a man, you know, and um, it is a question I think that uh, isn't as easily answered in kind of our homogenized modern day society for young boys who start entering adolescence and going, okay, well, I'm supposed to become a man. What does that actually look like? The conversation began with the discussion of masculine identity in Southwest Virginia. Gary Lester, a retiree who once played college football and is now a part-time radio sports announcer, was raised in Southwest Virginia. He has observed both the challenges and the changes with masculine identity in this region. When I grew up here, the masculine, you know, a, a man was a man, a woman was a woman, and there was, you know, no in-betweens or whatever. And, you know, that's kind of, you, you get that ingrained in you from your grandfather owned a farm that, you, you know, helped him work on, your father who uh, was uh, worked in a factory his whole life. So... I had really a pretty big awakening when I was transferred up to DC and, and had to do that job. And then, but when I moved back here, I guess I was a little bit surprised that things had not moved forward more than I thought they would have. I, you know, I came back into this with, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know if I, how you'd describe it, but I'd kind of had my eyes open living in Atlanta and DC and being around people that had grown up in different worlds. So when I came back here, I was, it was like I moved back in time. 
so when we think of rural communities, there's a big emphasis on men as the breadwinners and men sort of investing a lot in their work and being productive and very family-centered. Dr. Tracy Cohn is a professor of psychology at Radford University. And I have a clinical practice, and so what I tend to see in that practice too is this real gender divide. Like, these are okay emotions for men, and we get one, and it's typically anger, and we're very familiar with that emotion and well-versed with it inside and out, but tend not to have a lot of other emotions that we can access. And so that, because I'm a psychologist and I'm interested in emotions, that tends to be what I see is this real divide between emotions. Kyle Sensabaugh is a former college basketball player who now works with a nonprofit devoted to business and community development in Southwest Virginia. He is a transplant to Southwest Virginia who married into a family with long roots in the region. You know, I grew up in the city. I never touched a lawnmower until, until uh, you know, like my senior year, and that was just my grandpa showing me how to do it. So I think the masculinity coming from that to this perspective was a lot different because when I came here, my, my in-laws and uh, the people that I met and the people I know, they have tractors and they have mowers and they know how to use weed eaters and backhoes. And I didn't even know what half that stuff was. So I felt like I was kind of looked at in a different realm coming here, working in a hardware store at first, because I didn't, I didn't know what two cycle, four cycle, that kind of stuff was. So I felt like there was a lot of learning that I had to kind of do. And I felt like it was kind of already expected of me being in this rural setting of Southwest Virginia that wasn't expected of me back in Columbus. There's a different expectation, a different role. It wasn't just work hard, it was work hard and then come home and work and know how to do the at-home work. Dr. Cohn has researched and written extensively on the topic of male identity, especially as it relates to toxic masculinity, which is a familiar term that is often misunderstood. When we start thinking about toxic masculinity, it is a phrase that I think has been used as an insult against men, and we probably need to think about how we use that language. For me, it's a lot easier to think about it's masculinity that becomes toxic, the same way femininity can become toxic. And I think we are dealing with a controversial issue when we know people go on the radio and television stations and talk about toxic masculinity as an issue, and they get death threats and hate mail. Like, I think that tells us like the significance of the language we're using. And there is this idea that it came out of um, feminist scholars and that women came up with this idea to sort of penalize or punish men, when in fact, that's not true. It's a, it's a new concept that really emerged from men thinking about masculinity and their way of living in the world in the 1990s, when they sort of said, there is a level of masculinity that is unhelpful for men that it actually creates obstacles for them to living their best lived life. And as they started talking about it, it's things like an intense emphasis on being successful in a way that we don't expect women to be, or um, we call it restrictive emotionality. So when I say like, guys get that one emotion and it's typically anger. And when they experience other emotions, they don't know what to do with it. Um, in therapy, we talk about the angry iceberg and on top of the iceberg, there's anger. But once you tease apart, there's a whole complexity of emotions. And we tend not to socialize boys to tap into those emotions. I do think that's changing. And then there's this other piece about um, related to toxic masculinity where men are not um, permitted to show concern 
for both other people and men in particular. If you think about relationships that men have with other men, there's um, frequently a lack of tenderness. If we look in cross-cultural studies, men are much closer physically than they are in the United States. There's much more distance between us. And so that's been indicative of more toxic masculinity. And then this conflict men have between work and family. And what I see men get into um, sort of trouble with is they really want to be committed to their family, but they feel this pull by their gender to spend hours and hours upon work. So when we think about toxic masculinity, it is basically this amplification of masculinity to levels that create conflict for men around how to live their best lives. Within a discussion of toxic masculinity, it is hard to avoid a focus on what causes it. The participants in this discussion spoke of a variety of influences, including athletics and the media. And they spoke of what it means in their own lives, in particular their domestic lives and their relationships with their spouses. I have a large group of men that I've, I've come very close to over the years. And, um, and when you, when you own a business, at least from, in my experience, um, it's, it's a long-term relationship building process with the people either you work for or the people who work for you. And it's given me a, a great insight into a lot of different men's lives that I wouldn't otherwise have had the opportunity to have. What I've learned from that is that, um, men are definitely very, uh, very different from women, but yet we are in touch with our emotions just we just express it differently and we're I think men generally tend to be a little a little more guarded perhaps however I consistently experience this that um, having having discussions on what's going on in your personal life is talking about your feelings you know whether it's with with your you know your wife your kids or it's with the parent or something you know whatever is going on when you're discussing that you are you are in a sense talking about your feelings and, and men definitely do need that communication with with each other in a way that's, you know, you can, you can talk, you can get advice without feeling judged. You can get encouraged if you're just feeling down. I'm actually in a fortunate situation where my wife is a therapist and does uh, therapy. So she's, she's real big on, um, I get to decide where I get to talk to her and she, she welcomes that. She actually encourages it probably more than I want it. So um, I have that availability and we, we are a hundred percent a partnership uh, you know, she works hard. I work hard. We both, you know, kind of bring home things to the table. And we're both very active in trying to raise our little one and little one on the way. So we are an equal partnership in that. Gary Lester and Kyle Sensabaugh are both former college athletes, and they do admit that athletics and competition can sometimes play a role in toxic masculinity. My own experience and what I see, I, I, I do think that sometimes athletics amplifies what Tracy just talked about, uh, because there is this, you know, you got to be tough, you got to tough it out, pick yourself up by, by your bootstraps and go on and so forth. And you, that's just ingrained in athletics, I think, and particularly I, I think so in football. I mean, that's just you know, you see that all the time, still on television and so forth. But I, I do see some things changing. My son graduated from Emory in 2010. He played football there, he, and he was as tough as nails, but he is not. He does not have that characteristic. You know, for example, I can just tell you, he loves to cook and is proud of it and proud of the fact that he can cook, go to the grocery store, plan the meals and so forth. And he's, he's a wonderful dad with his two sons in terms of taking care of them and 
when he was young, I guess I would, you know, if he fell down, I'd say, get up, Bradley, let's go, and, and so forth. But so I do see that changing, and I see these football players because I interact with them a lot. It's just a whole different set of uh, values, I guess you'd say, than, than when I was there and, and for me. So I do see it change, but I do think that the athletics kind of amplifies what, what Tracy has said. You know, I think with athletes, especially, there's always like that bigger, like toughness, you know, like uh, feature. You know, you think about some of the people you know. Back growing up in high school, I, I'm not telling my teammates I love them. You know, I mean, I'm not you know, putting my arms around them and taking pictures with them just because that was frowned upon. You know, that was like, hey, whoa, whoa, you know. And now you see the heroes for me, like people like that I looked up to, like, you know, like LeBron James and, you know, seeing posts on social media and saying, I love my guys. These are my brothers. I do anything for them. I love them. You know, seeing videos, like tribute videos to Kobe and seeing guys cry on national TV talking about, hey, I love these people. Dak Prescott coming out talking about mental health. And I think a lot of it just comes with, personal growth, you know, what you see and what you experience. One obstacle to expressing feelings, although it is becoming less so according to the men in this discussion, is sexuality. Many straight men continue to resist a discussion of emotion for fear of being perceived as homosexual. Here is how Dr. Eric Smith responded. I think it's absolutely an issue, and it's likely to be an issue for generations. I I also, though, will say that the the rate of transformation on questions of acceptance, the rate of change is truly astounding, frankly, for human beings. Like the, the scale of change in Western civilization in, in terms of acceptance since the 1950s is, you know, since my dad was a little boy, is truly amazing. It is, it is maybe the, the fastest transformation of a society towards an an opening of, of awareness and an opening of acceptance and in, in, that I know of in human history. But I also think that you're going to have significant holdouts for a long time. I mean, we're going to have to have these conversations for certainly decades, maybe centuries. It, it, this kind of goes back a little bit what I said about growth. I think now it's just, it's so different because I'm, my, my friend group is so diverse. I, we actually have conversations around this all the time. I have some good buddies that we're in the group message with. A lot of my friends are married now, you know, and then uh, my best friend from back home um, is gay and, you know, he's married and, you know, he's in a group message with us. And it's just, you know, I think that we're all able to openly talk and, you know, somebody might say something like, actually, I was talking about um, room colors because we're expecting our second little girl next month in February. And I was like, you know, I kind of wanted to paint the room gray, but, you know, I was like, oh, maybe we should do a purple since it's going to be a girl. And it's like, well, why does it have to be purple? Because it's a girl, you know, like, where, is, there a, is there a color tone for girls and guys? And it's like, you know, things that I don't even think about. I'm like, no, it's not a color tone because my favorite color is purple. But it's just things that we have conversations about that. And the, to be honest with you, my friend group, we'll call each other out a little bit more than what's what's expected. I'm different in that where I didn't have that friend group or that uh, closeness that I had with my friends maybe 10 years ago that I do now that allows me to grow in that perspective. So what can be done, if anything, to keep Southwest Virginia men on a course toward healthy male identity? Part of the solution has to do with communication. According to the participants in this discussion, Another part of a productive course is helping men arrive at a clear definition of masculinity. According to David Berg, there is confusion on this point, which challenges him as a father. 
I do think there is a tremendous amount of confusion on what masculinity even is. And I think from that has resulted this idea that somehow you could have too much masculinity. And from that, you are kind of given sort of two canned options is you can either be the the classic masculine man. You have you have one emotion. You don't hold and kiss babies. You don't cook. You go out and you, you bite nails in half while you're pulling a, a log up a hill just just because you can, you know. And and not to say that uh, that those masculine activities are bad in any way, but it's also saying that you know somehow being involved in certain other activities like you know like cooking or being considerate and careful to people that are different from you or that general sort of sensitivity or concern, empathy, which um, maybe are not as classically masculine. But however, I, I just think that because of this confusion, I do see where the unintended sort of fallout from that is young men or boys getting the impression that masculinity is toxic. I think, I think like so many conversations, it's important to like be, be careful how we have it because of the whole Socratian logic of like, if you, if you present it in certain ways, you just turn off the other person, the other side immediately. And, and so tackling it in many ways is, is, is important and, and being careful about the diplomacy of the thing. Even when you just want to scream, what are you thinking? One of the often overlooked consequences of toxic masculinity is the fact that it can have a very deleterious impact on a man's health, according to Dr. Cohn. One of my interest areas is what keeps men from accessing preventative care. It, it's a question that comes up in psychology all the time. Like take colorectal cancer, a, a relatively easy uh, cancer to treat if caught early. Men underutilize tests, like they don't receive preventative care for that. So we're much more likely to catch that in the latter stages. And so I, I think what you're talking about here is how do we engage in this preventative conversation? How do we really engage men to seek therapists? They, they are one of the lowest consumers of therapy. Not, not that I'm drumming up business here, but, but how do we encourage men to sort of seek services before it becomes really bad? Because exploring like masculinity is one of those things you can do in therapy. And so in, in thinking about this today, I was going back to, to what we know about preventative medicine. And if you look at the, the two major killers in the United States, heart disease and cancer, men um, are more likely to die of heart disease and cancer 50 to 80 times higher rates than women. And, and that's after you control all of the other things like age. And so one of the things we need to consider is how maybe higher levels of masculinity might actually be deadly, like costing men their lives. And so it is access to preventative care and utilization, but I also think it's this piece of not being able to access the whole spectrum of emotions. So psychologists love to put fancy names on terms, and one of those terms we have is alexithymia, and it is the inability to name emotions. And so in therapy, what we do if we have someone who, who can't identify their emotions, and I'll sort of describe it as sometimes emotions just feel like a great big ball of yarn, and you have a really hard time teasing those emotions apart. And, and so what I'm going to give you is I'm going to give you a feelings sheet. And in fact, it has all of the emotions named on it. And I'm going to make you pick out the emotions that you have experienced in the last day. So men can start to learn how to articulate what their emotions are. Because again, at a very early age, we train boys like the acceptable emotion is typically aggressive anger. And so being able to retrain men to recognize what joy is and elation and sorrow. Like, I think that's part of what our conversation has to be. Like, you can still be a masculine male 
and cry when your child is born. You could still be a masculine male and experience deep sadness when your friend moves away. It doesn't necessarily have any implication on sexual orientation, but like you can experience that loss without being afraid that you're feminine. All of the men in this discussion are in some way on the front line of evolving for other men a healthy understanding of masculinity, whether it's leading a large workforce of males, dealing with students, coaching athletes, or raising sons. And these men see the changes even here in Southwest Virginia. Yeah, we, we all definitely have a lot of character flaws. And, and, and when you get close to people, the more of those flaws you get to see. And uh, I think, the, you know, the approach I take is uh, w- without, without making, well, just, just to say Joe Bob, okay, without, say Joe Bob is, is telling me about um, something's going on at home. And, and I see where his, he, he has a blind spot, you know, and, and he's, he's, not, he's not understanding his, his wife and he's, he's um, feeling frustrated with that. Rather, rather than, you know, coming out, out of the gate at him and saying, Hey, look, you know, you're, you're, you're just a terrible person, Joe, you need to straighten up or, um, you know, first listening, really, really listening. And, and then recognizing too, that our, our human weakness is obviously not exclusive to being man, but there are definitely certain, uh, more male pattern weaknesses and, and it is usually does kind of come down to just simply being less selfish. Like most, most problems in our, our, our lives and relationships can be solved with just that one simple thing. When, when that shift has come, and, and, and sometimes in a conversation, you can just see you feel more uplifted. When, when you shift your focus from what should I not be doing to more to what should I be doing? The wrong message that is given particularly to boys and men is they're told much, much more frequently what not to do, what not to be, and don't be too much this, don't do that, don't say this, and very little given to what they should do. And I, and I really have found this much more effective, especially towards men and boys, to rather than to say, hey, don't objectify women, to rather than say that, to say, do be more focused on serving the women around you being more helpful, more considerate to the women that are in your life. But I also have the conversation, especially with kids from rural and inner city backgrounds, and especially with my, my uh, uh, women students, of be more selfish. Like, you don't have to do the thing you grew up thinking you had to do. Like, you grew up in um, tiny town, and you thought you had to, you know, play football or and get married at 21 and have your first kid at 23 at, at the latest and um, and this, that, and the other. And it's like, no, you can do whatever the hell you want. But but like, especially, you know, and I say that to, to men and women and in different contexts, you know, that you can be what you want. And uh, the number of, the, with women, I have that conversation a lot if they're like, especially if they're getting into international relations and they're like, I'm from Grundy and my family is like, why do you want to study other countries and especially like the Islamic world? And, and they're like, I don't know what to say, Dr. Smith. And I'm like, I'll tell you what you say. You say you want to do it. And, 
and you explain why you're interested in it and how you want to help people and help America and and you're tough you're hardcore and and um and, but yeah I mean I think I think that that there is it's both a selflessness but also the I don't like the word selfishness but the self like like letting them know they can be what they want yeah I would say I've seen a change in it because I you know I grew up in the family and and, and would uh <laughs> It was, you know, the, the men, you know, sat down to the table to eat. The women served them. They got up and left. The women cleaned the dishes, you know, and the men went in, sat by the stove and chewed tobacco and smoked their cigars or whatever. And, and so I grew up with that. And, I, and I'm really glad to see that both of my children, uh, my daughter and, and my son, have relationships where there is a tremendous amount of, they both work, they both have two kids. There's a tremendous amount of sharing of, <clears throat> excuse me, of the responsibilities. And I don't think my son is threatened one bit. And I also don't think my daughter's husband is threatened either. No, I, I, I have, but I, I, I'm, I'm pleased with the way it's turned out with my kids. And, and, and I'm pleased that they are so comfortable in their own skin, I guess, to steal a phrase. The good news is that men are increasingly having conversations during which they express their emotions. The remaining challenge, however, is how to prevent problems with male identity from spilling over into something dangerous for society. Men do express their emotions, you know, and I think I think perhaps when when a man does, like um, I think as Kyle uh, pointed out, does uh, give another man a hug. In, in, in acting on that emotion that you're feeling. Um, so I, I hug all my guys all the time and, uh, you know, give them kisses on the cheek. You can be extremely masculine and be very affectionate with people you love, physically affectionate. Um, express your, your joy, express your sorrow. I have a background and wrote my dissertation on the origins of, of violence, uh, civils, especially civil wars, um, and the linkages between especially questions of like identity um, and, and how does violence emerge and what are the sources of violence? And, and of course, feminist theory is critical to that in, entire discussion in political science. At, at WISE, one of the things that fascinates me is here we are at this incredibly rural location. Like it, WISE County is, uh, it is, is, there's just nothing around Wise County and Wise, the, the town of Wise and Norton, which would kind of function as one are, are pretty much, it feels like it's in the middle of farms and mines and because it is. And so a lot of our kids are rural. And, and then the, the biggest group after that, I would say are inner city kids. Um, and, uh, but a lot of first generation students. And one of the things that strikes me is, you know, I'm, I'm not that old. I graduated from college only about 20 years ago, just down the road from Wise, but I do feel like there is among among young people, whether they're rural or urban, there's a much higher consciousness of questions of gender and questions of sexuality and sensitivity to those things among and 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 like when I was in when I was in in college, you know, you would have seen uh, certain kids and they were really rural, and the assumption would be, oh, they're going to be a jerk about questions of sex or, or gender or whatever. And even let's be honest, in the '90s, I mean, it was it was not a real sensitive time about those questions. And even then, you would assume that. And now I I see my students, and I I really get kind of hopeful 
I think the dialogue we're having right now is what we need to be having at larger levels. We sort of set up this, um, not in this conversation, but I think nationally and globally, we've set up this conflict between masculinity and femininity to the point that we think that there are separate books necessary for men and women. And we even talk about men are from one planet and women for an, from another. Like, how is it possible that we could even understand the experience of a woman? But if you look at the literature, we keep coming back to this idea of gender differences. But if you look back at the literature and you operate from how and how are men and women actually similar, we're more unique to each other than we are different. If you look at the brain structure of a, a man's brain and a woman's brain, they're nearly identical, very small differences. So I think coming back to this idea that men and women are much more similar than they are different is part of that conversation. You have been listening to Together to Get There. Thank you for listening.